This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Kendra Fershay, Democratic nominee for Congress in West Virginia's first. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning the nomination. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. So this seat is considered pretty safe for the GOP. Can I say that you don't feel that way? <laughs> you would be correct. And why is that? Well, I well a couple of things. One, um, a lot of people thought that the the uh, primary was safe for my opponent, who had uh, ten times more money than me. And uh, we, my team and I, did the analysis of the district, and um, we really knew we had a path to win. We followed our plan. We actually ended up being the biggest money upset in the country. We, uh, despite being outspent six to one and outraised ten to one, we uh, actually won by uh, nine points. And um, so that that information kind of helped us see a path to victory in the general. Because I think people really misread uh, the, this district. They actually people really misread, misread West Virginia politics. But what they're not catching about this district is that, and it's true actually throughout the state, 55 counties of 55 in West Virginia voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary um, in the 2016 presidential. And three counties that uh, in my district, actually, there were more votes for Bernie Sanders than there were for Donald Trump on the Republican side. Politics here is a lot more sort of nuanced than people, I think, even can tell from the outside. There's a pretty strong sentiment here in West Virginia that I think in particular universal health care is something that would really help us. The other thing is that people are really tired of politicians who camp out in their job, you know, that they stay there forever and they don't really do much for West Virginia. So the fact that my opponent is the incumbent and that he's um, been in the position for a while and that the state voted overwhelmingly for Trump actually doesn't mean as much as people might think. And what does universal health care mean to you? Well, I actually, I generally don't define it because it means, you know, essentially some people will say, well, you're thinking single payer or Medicare for all. Um, my answer is I, I like to think of myself as a problem solver, not a solution bringer. So I don't want to show up with a set plan that, you know, we have to have in order um, to, you know, in order to vote in favor of, of universal health care. I like to think of it more in terms of what will work quickest to get us coverage in West Virginia for everyone, regardless of, you know, where they work or their age. I really think we need to decouple health care from employment. And everybody who, um, you know, everybody in America should have health care. And let's say a public option or Medicare for all bill is up for a vote. Could you imagine yourself supporting it? Yes, for sure. 
Great. So what are the other problems you are looking to solve right now? Well, we have, I mean, we have a lot, unfortunately, in West Virginia. We are um, dying uh, at a higher rate of drug overdose than any other state in the country. Poverty is, um, is deep here. We've got 20% of the adult population in poverty, 25% of children in West Virginia live in poverty, and 32% of African Americans live in poverty. And I don't see that getting better anytime soon. We also have a real struggle in our public education system, as a lot of people around the country noticed in the winter. We had a teacher strike that reverberated throughout the states, um, and several states followed suit. And it's because our funding for our schools is so low that our teachers are asked to do more and more for students who are just in a really bad spot. You know, they, like I said, they're in poverty. They, they come, their home life is sometimes disrupted by drug addiction. We've got a lot of challenges here. But when I decided to run, my motto for my campaign is that I want to fight for West Virginians' freedom to stay in West Virginia, because people aren't feeling free to make the choice to be here. They have to leave in order to get a good job or, you know, expand their horizons. And, and it's sad because people don't want to have to do that. How would you go about creating jobs in your state? Well, there are a few paths. Um, first, we have a pretty narrow economic base right now. We A lot of the economics of the state are based on the extraction in- industry, first coal and now moving toward natural gas. And while both of, you know, extraction has been a part of West Virginia for a very long time, it's part of our, our legacy and our history, uh, and it will almost certainly be a part of our economy forever, or at least, you know, in, for a very, very long time, we have got to diversify. You can't, you know, kind of focus on just one area of the economy, especially the, um, you know, natural resources, because that's a boom and bust sort of cycle. And um, so my thoughts are that we need to expand into um, medical cannabis, industrial hemp, and other agricultural areas, because we actually come from you know, our state flag has a miner on one side and, and a farmer on the other. And people, we've moved so far away from farming that people forget that's a big part of our history. We have incredibly good conditions to farm all sorts of things here. So that's just one way we could diversify. Regarding marijuana, do you support expunging the records of people convicted on nonviolent possession offenses? Yeah, it's kind of, to me, at this point, we have come to understand so much more about marijuana, and it's legalized, both recreational and medical, has been legalized in many places around the country. We've legalized medical cannabis here. If the state, particularly if the state legalized recreational it seems to me really expensive and and you know harmful to to people and to communities to continue keeping people in jail who've gone there because they've done something that's now legal. We have a big strain on our on our um, prison system because we've got a lot of people in jail for doing things that uh, you know that aren't that wouldn't necessarily be considered harmful and wouldn't even be illegal. I think that speaks to the larger issue of how we handle drug problems Mm -hmm. through our criminal justice system. Can I get your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I mean, 
for so long, um, we have tried to incarcerate our way out of um, drug addiction, and it is not a criminal problem. People who have, are using drugs or are dealing drugs often are in a bad spot. And, um, you know, I think for addiction, that is a healthcare issue, not a law enforcement issue. And for people who are dealing, a lot of times, I mean, you hear heartbreaking stories of people who are, you know, running businesses, growing marijuana, because that's the only way their family can eat. And, um, and instead of working on the economic challenges that we have, we've been trying to imprison people to fix the problem, and that's not working. So even if we're just being pragmatic, which we should be, we shouldn't be throwing people in jail for drug addiction or for, you know, nonviolent offenses that, you know, are, are now legal in a lot of places. And I'm curious, in terms of economic diversification, do you think that green energy jobs are a part of that? Absolutely. That can be a big part of our economy here. I mean, we are used to being an energy state, and there are businesses that have come in. Um, there's solar. Uh, we have wind farms. We, you know, we have opportunity here for lots of different green energy uh, jobs and we have, I mean, we have more rivers than um, than most places in the United States. There's just a lot of a lot of natural resources here that are green, and we're not tapping into that as much as we could. Our our policy doesn't reflect how useful and you know how beneficial those revenue streams would be to West Virginia, and we need to start tapping into that revenue. You mentioned the teachers' strike. What would you do to help support teachers and public education as a member of Congress? Uh, so a lot of people ask me about, you know, what does the federal government, here especially, because we've, we've got such a big focus on our teachers now, which is awesome and different than it's been in the past. And we focused a lot about on the, on the uh, state legislature, because that's obviously who was at the at the center of this uh, of the strike, they were the Republicans in the state legislature were refusing to uh, give the teachers a raise and refusing to fix the skyrocketing costs of the health insurance that we have. They focus a lot on the state legislature, but when asked about what the federal government has to do with education, there are two really big ways the Fed is involved in education, public education in West Virginia. The first is funding. The federal government is the source of most of the funding for the public schools here. And the second has two names, Betsy DeVos. She is um, a, not a fan of public schools. And my concern, because the teachers were so successful last winter, um, and because the teachers were are mostly uh, unionized, the um, I, I, my fear that Betsy DeVos has a big target on West Virginia when it comes to dismantling public schools. So if she wants to do a pilot program, I worry it's coming here. So we need strong leadership in Congress to make sure that that does not happen. But in terms of being proactive, the federal government, uh, the funding could be incredibly helpful to us. And we could use some help from the federal government in getting more people educated in sort of a resource position that school, a lot of schools need here. Someone who's sort of a social worker who could, and, and maybe has some background in psychology, who can work with students who are really struggling at a young age and help them 
stay on a path of, of mental and emotional health, but also physical health, um, you know, troubleshooting, catching problems before they get really bad so that we can help kids, um, you know, avoid the, the ills of drug addiction and um, violence as they get older. That is a huge need here. We just not, we not, not only don't have the funding to hire people to go into schools and help us deal with the challenges that the kids have, but there aren't even people who have the expertise or education to hire here in West Virginia. We could, I mean, it would be great to have some help from the federal government to get more people on the path to being, you know, in a, in a college program so they could come out and help schools and help students. One of the most unfortunate concerns of students right now is gun violence. And unfortunately, we have seen in response a massive increase in police presence in schools. That may sound good in theory, but it has proven ineffective and even worse, dangerous to marginalized students, especially Black students, as well as disabled students and LGBTQ students. What would you hope to do to actually effectively deal with gun violence and ensure that students are safe in schools? Well, I, I was just going to say my concern for school resource officers um, in a law enforcement context is exactly what you said. Whenever school resource officers or law enforcement officers are in school, sometimes it's okay, but sometimes it's not. And it's typically not for students who are particularly vulnerable um, already. So I am very uncomfortable with the notion that we have to militarize or, you know, become, you know, police have police presence in all of our schools in order for our students to be safe. And in fact, we know that that doesn't always work. There are potential negative consequences for having school resource officers on site. But we also know that there have been times where there have been police or armed guards that have not been able to intervene in an active shooter situation. So I think the best way to reduce gun violence in schools is not to turn our schools into fortresses, but to engage with students to make sure that there are mental health professionals who can work with students before they get to the point where they feel so alienated and emotionally um, damaged from whatever bad situations they're dealing with at home and at school and, and help students kind of learn how to deal with those challenges. I think that might be a longer term solution. I'm not sure that works in the short term, although I'm not sure that it doesn't. Because so many times we see school shootings perpetrated by students or former students, and who and those students have negative feelings about school, how they were treated. And, um, and I think this is a, I, I don't want to say it's a mental health issue because it's not, that's not fair to people who struggle with mental health challenges. Many, many people who have mental health challenges don't become violent. But what we're seeing is students who have what we call ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, are increasingly like, likely with each adverse childhood experience to have negative outcomes as they get older. Drug addiction, violence, early pregnant childhood pregnancy, uh, you know, you name it, there are just so many things that come along with that feeling of alienation. And I think that could really help reduce gun violence to have someone who's trained. So looking at higher education, I'm sure one of the big reasons that Bernie Sanders was so successful in your state was his 
proposal for tuition-free public education. Since then, an even more interesting proposal has been made by Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, which is debt-free public education, which also factors in the high cost of living, of food, of books. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I have, so my challenge with um, debt-free college education is that I feel like it doesn't take into account the private institutions that we have that are very well endowed and people who are extremely wealthy who can afford education, higher ed. My concern is that if we make, you know, and I think it's a doable, it's a fixable problem. Like I said, this is about problem solving. Um, But I don't want public dollars going toward people's education who can already afford it because I feel like that reduces the resources for people who really need them. And my concern is that what happens is you see models around the world where you have public or you have education that's totally debt free for students and it's wonderful except that it's extremely limited who gets to take advantage of it. So I don't want it to become that it's that higher ed is only for the most elite people, you know, in terms of their educational ability, because the funding is so limited that it has to be narrowed down to just a few people. So I think uh, one of the things that we need to be doing is looking at, you know, making sure that students who struggle to pay for school are not worried about how they, you know, how they stay in school. As long as they're keeping up with their studies, they can stay either through loan forgiveness upon graduation or um, help while they're in school. And I don't know what form exactly that takes. But I also think we need to be doing a better job of helping students find the right path. Here in West Virginia, there are a lot of students who come to, I'm I'm a professor, I teach here at West Virginia University, and we get a lot of students who come from all over the state. They come from very small towns. They come from places that are very, very impoverished. And they get here and they realize pretty quickly it's not a good fit. They don't want to be here. They don't like the educational format. It's just, they, it doesn't, it's not a good arrangement, you know, for them. They thought they wanted to come to college and they don't. So I think we need to, need to do a better job of helping those students find the right path before they get here. Because if you do a year or two and then you decide it's just not right for you, you've got a couple of years of college debt and no credential. To help pay it off. Or, you know, you see people, because our jobs situation is so bad, you see people going through a four-year program, getting a credential, and then not being able to find a job that helps them pay back that debt. That's not acceptable, especially for people who go into a public service uh, realm. I think we need, we need, you know, maybe a gap year where we help students think about where they want to be we need better training in high schools for students who might be interested in trade training. Um, and then they can go into a free community ed program, community college program that can get them trained up and you know ready to open a business doing plumbing or electrical or HVAC. And we need to strengthen our, our communities so that people can start small businesses or start farming, whatever it is that they feel like is the better fit for them so they can stay here in West Virginia without that debt load. And once we get the students, you know, in the right path where we've got students who are here because it's the, it's the right fit and they want to be here, those are the students that then we can really work with them and say, we've got, you know, we've got you here. We know you're, 
you want to be here. This is a, this is a good fit for you. How do we help you offset the cost of of college education? A, a point you've hit on a few times is the corrupting influence of corporate money in politics on public institutions. I know that you don't take corporate money in your campaign and are dedicated to getting money out of politics. Could you tell us more about how exactly you intend to do so? Well, I think I think right now we are not doing we as a, you know, self-governed society are not doing a good job of holding our our elected officials accountable. We see them taking huge amounts of money from corporations and benefiting from that by getting elected because they can just buy name recognition and and the really sad part about it is not just that they're buying name recognition with a bunch of money that's coming in from out of state it's that that money allows them to avoid their constituents it allows them to to ref, to be able to refuse to answer questions they don't have to make anybody um you know aware of where they stand because they're going to get the money anyway so that it, just from that's just a direct contribution concern but the bigger concern is what's happened post citizens united which is the independent expenditure money that is being spent all over the country right and right here in the West Virginia 1st district to help my opponent um to the tune of a quarter of a million dollars you know this is massive money that doesn't have to be attributed to any individual this the the rules are are different on how that money is spent and as long as the campaign isn't working directly with the independent expenditure there are these outside super PACs that can do almost whatever they want and spend as much as they want and say whatever they want so i think we need campaign finance reform i think we need to um close those loopholes and make sure that that independent expenditure money is tracked which i know actually we're moving in the right direction the supreme court just denied certiorari for a case that actually said that there needs to be better transparency for those super PAC donations which is a good it's a step in the right direction um but this is this is a legislative fix because the supreme court has decided that you know money is speech and congress can work with that decision to uh you know pass limitations on how that money can be raised and spent but you know right now somebody could come in and spend a bunch of money on my behalf and i wouldn't know who they were or what they were saying or until I saw it on TV or in the mail or whatever and that's that's kind of that blows my mind that we're you know the, our elections are being influenced by people we don't even know who they are and do you support the public financing of elections i do i think that um i think that's one way to even the play, playing field another is and uh my opponent was using it said that uh, there's a lot of government waste and one example is these uh, franking privileges that congressional members get to use money from the public fisc to send information to their to their constituents and um he said that's a waste of of government resources and then proceeded to become the fourth worst offender out of 435 representatives he sends very fancy glossy mailers on our taxpayer dollars regularly to all throughout the the district and it's incredibly expensive so uh that's an incumbency advantage for you know that i think is is not a proper use of of government resources and um and so those are a lot of sort of small ways that we can you know or there are other small ways we can stop the thumb on the scale for incumbents and that sort of evens the playing field. 
Kind of related question. I'm sure you've got it before, but would you support Nancy Pelosi for Speaker of the House? I have gotten that question before. <laughs> Had a um, feeling. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know Nancy Pelosi. I'm not a politician. I've never run for anything in my life. I've never met her. Uh, in fact, my opponent knows her a lot better than I do. But what I would, what I've told my constituents, and I think this is the fair thing, especially because I know as much as they do. I will ask my constituents for their opinion on who would be the best representative, uh, the best speaker for West Virginia. So my my plan is to educate the voters here about who the the um, candidates are for Speaker of the House and ask for their input. And I don't know what they'll say, but you know. It, they, it, I, I'm, I'm happy for their input because my job is to represent them and to listen to their concerns and their, you know, and their desires. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. Kind of the issue that defines this era that speaks to our national character is immigration. Before we look at what's happening today, I'd like to look back at Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. I bring that up because that is the act that criminalized undocumented status and put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. I'd like to read a very quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Fong Yu Ting decision in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. This quote is in regards to the constitutionality of deportation. Quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment, and oftentimes the most severe and cruel, end quote. Would you agree with this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act? I would agree particularly with, um, as we apply it to our modern day, the, uh, the dreamers, right? That, that quote says to me, and I, it's, 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 it's pretty powerful. I see why you, why you uh, are, are drawn to it, because I think it says a lot about who we are as Americans, you know, to, to, remove people from the land that they know best. And we see that with kids who came here at a very young age or were, um, you know, where they were so young, they don't remember having lived anywhere else. I think it is 
it is in- incredibly, um, it's kind of almost mind boggling to think about what would happen or how you would feel to have to leave the only place you've ever known and all of your friends. And, you know, some, some dreamers are in college are, you know, the, the sort of best and brightest of, of their generation. They've built dreams, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're in college or not, you have your dreams, you have your plans and um, you're building a life here. And then to have to go somewhere that you have, you know, you don't know anyone, you may not even speak the language seems, seems really punishing. Um, I have spoken out very clearly against the family border separation policy. And even though people told me I shouldn't, that, you know, this is, this is not the sort of thing you want to take a position on in West Virginia. Um, I feel very strongly as a mom that we shouldn't treat people that way, that we shouldn't treat children that way. It's a, it's a wrongheaded policy. And, and while it's even, while it's changed, we still have children separated from their parents because the federal government hasn't put the resources into reuniting them that they should. I mean, this is an emergency and emergency resources should be spent to reunite those families. My thoughts on immigration are this. We are struggling so much in West Virginia and there are so many problems here that resources being spent on an expensive border wall don't help West Virginians. And in fact, we don't see a ton of immigration in West Virginia because immigrants come to places that are economically strong And when they come, they tend to make the economy stronger, as long as they're allowed to participate in a way that is um, that, you know, allows them to pay taxes into the economy. So this isn't really an issue that we've been seeing here, because our economy isn't strong enough to attract a lot of immigrants. So I would like to focus on putting resources into strengthening our communities, instead of sending people back to a place that they may have been born in, but they don't know. So we've actually had some dreamers on the podcast before, and something they said that really resonated with me is that while they appreciate the DREAM Act and similar legislation that would give them citizenship, they don't want to see their parents, their grandparents, the undocumented elders who don't fit under the DREAM acronym that make up 70% of the undocumented population, they don't want to see them deported as they get citizenship. Do you support citizenship not just for undocumented youth, but also their families? Well, I think we need to have a policy that's geared toward not being punishing. I, I think, you know, going back to the dissent that you, the quote from the dissent that you read, if we think of, of immigration as punitive, then we are going to have the wrong mindset when it comes to our immigration policy. We need to think about how our country was built, you know, where our forefathers and foremothers came from, because pretty much all of us probably came from somewhere else, and how we want to treat people who are also in search of the American dream. And when our economy is strong, people don't have as much trouble with the idea of immigration because they don't see it as a challenge. And I don't think that, um, you know, my my feeling is that we should not be punishing people through deportation. If people have been contributing members of their communities, if they have, you know, no, if they're not, you know, have criminal records, they're just, you know, they're just trying to live their lives, then I think we need a policy that is working toward 
a plan so that people can be here and and feel confident that they can be a part of this of their uh, of, of building a new America and not worry that they are going to be deported simply because you know the their the way they got here might not have been the the, the path that they should have taken so in a non-punitive immigration system what role should the federal government have in the immigration system well i mean the federal government control really does control immigration as you've pointed out and um i think we need to look more i think we need more clear um data and this is i mean this is a problem obviously we've been working on good immigration policy for a very long time this is not new president obama you know was concerned with immigration president bush was concerned with immigration this is um clinton they're going back quite a while that we've this has been a challenge that we have um, not really been able to solve. So I don't know that I have the answer, but I do know that we need to approach it with real a real sense of what's happening when it comes to immigration. And like I said, I think people have a lot of wrong ideas. They think of immigrants as taking away from the economy when in fact they contribute to it, and that you know that communities are somehow negatively impacted by immigration when there's not data to back that up. You know, the, the incorrect assertion that immigrants are responsible for more crime is just the exact opposite of true. And we just need to be really clear about the reality so that we can come up with policy that is, um, that is humane and, um, and helps people find the American dream regardless of where they've been, where they were born both people who've been born in America and people who have come here from other places um, can be incredibly valuable contributing members to society. And we need to be able to evaluate that with real clear data. I, I appreciate that you mentioned that we should not be punishing people simply based upon papers. With that, in a world where we do decriminalize migration itself, really, would you say that we would no longer need a role for ERO in immigration enforcement and removal operations? Well, I my concern is if we, I don't know that that's necessarily the right path. We may need some enforcement mechanism. I'm not, you know, I, th I think if we, my concern is where we started talking about decommissioning certain enforcement mechanisms around the country, that some other mechanism will rise up and take its place. And so I'm not sure it's it's not necessarily about the mechanism itself. It's about how to most effectively ensure that the people who are coming here are, you know, going to be people that will contribute to society. And I know that that's hard to say. I mean, it's we're not perfect. We're not going to say, well, this person can come in and and we'll never ever do anything that's that's, uh, you know, that might harm America or Americans, because obviously there are a lot of Americans who engage in bad behavior. There's no perfect fix to making sure that everybody who comes to the U.S. is, is you know, going to be a perfect person. But I do think we need some sort of enforcement mechanism. I don't think that we should be just I guess I don't, this is one of those where I don't know the right answer. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly how we do this, but I also know that, you know, people are concerned that if we just literally take away all enforcement mechanism for immigration, that we may find ourselves in a bad spot that we can't then roll back. Just looking at e existing proposals with that, uh, one of the 
ideas is if we're not punishing people based on immigration status, then they would go through what what we would hope to be an effective and fair criminal justice system where they're not punished based on their citizenship status, but rather based upon whatever crime they commit. And again, right. hopefully in <laughs> appropriate uh, in, in how we're punishing crime rather than just locking people up, as you said, right. for drug offenses. Is, is this something that you would, you would support? Yeah, I mean, I think, we, and this is one of those things, I'm very pragmatic. And I also think we need to be, um, you know, smarter about our policy in terms of what actually are we concerned with? Are, if we're concerned with people coming here, coming to the United States because they might engage in crime, then we need to punish them for engaging in crime. And we can never know exactly what somebody's going to do when they cross the border, right? I mean, people can come here on a travel, you know, to, to just spend a few weeks and do something awful while they're here. It, it, we're not going to be able to pre-screen every person based on you know, every single factor of what they have in their mind when they cross the border. But so I think we need to be vigilant about enforcing um, crime and making sure that people aren't engaging, you know, if they do engage in crime, that they are appropriately punished for that in conjunction with a good policy system for uh, punishing crime, but not you know, punishment for immigration status or citizenship status is a waste of resources and is not um, is not appropriate based on the you know quote unquote offense. So, are you open to the proposal to abolish ICE? This is and this is where I'm saying I don't know that that gets us where we want to be. I uh-huh. if ICE isn't if ICE doesn't exist, I fear that then law enforcement in border communities like local law enforcement will be tasked with immigration enforcement, and I don't know that that's better. So mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, no matter what, whoever, you know, if we have a federal government that is that is focused on immigration uh, punishment, you know, punitive immigration, there will be a path to enforcing that punishment, regardless of ICE exists or not. So I think, you know, my my thought with respect to ICE and saying let's abolish ICE, it's not about abolishing ICE. The actual what that means to me is, you know, the tr- that translation is we should have better Im- immigration policy that is a- enforced fairly. But it's not necessarily about ICE itself. Just what I'm hearing to clarify, you would say if if the law is changed and you don't need to have immigration criminalized, then it wouldn't really be an issue of the of enforcement anymore? Well, that's certainly true. I mean, if we don't have, if we're not punishing on the basis of citizenship status, then there probably wouldn't be as much of a need for an enforcement mechanism like ICE. And I mean, it might be, I think in some ways, I feel like abolish ICE is more of a political cry for better immigration policy. And that it's not necessarily that ICE itself that's the issue because, I mean, there are lots of countries that probably have really good immigration policy or decent immigration policy, and they might have an enforcement mechanism for um, dealing with people who violate their good policy. So ICE might be smaller, or we might come up with some technological advances that ensure that um, people who are flouting good immigration policy are 
you know, it, there are ways to protect the border, for example, that that don't include ice. You know, we can be a lot more sophisticated about how we're doing that. And we don't need um, the same enforcement mechanisms that we have right now. But I don't know what form that takes. It, it really would depend on what the immigration policy would become. And lastly, what can folks do to support your campaign and where can they find you online? So I have, um, obviously I have a website I'm on and I'm on Facebook and Twitter. All of my handles are the same. It's teamkendrawv.com, T-E-A-M-K-E-N-D-R-A-W-V, like West Virginia, .com, www for the website. And then I've got, that, that's the same handle for, um, for Facebook and Twitter. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I know this went longer than expected, but I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much, Jordan. Yeah, of course. And we hope to get you on again after you win in November. (laughs) Sounds good. Awesome. And now, as always, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.